Friends, we do believe in a great God, a great God who speaks sometimes in a still small whisper, sometimes clearly and from a mountaintop. And in the ancient days, God indeed gave ten commandments to his people, and over the last month we have been diving deeply into commandments number six through number nine. And lest you fear that God is out to kill your fun and kill your joy, the exact opposite is true. God speaks so that we might truly know life and truly know him. Now there is a spiritual danger in diving deeply into the Ten Commandments, and uh, it is this. Our human natures are so fallen and broken that when we start really considering things like murdering or violence or anger or cheating or adultery or taking or coveting, there is a quirky part of our nature that is actually uh, maybe more attracted to those things than, they, than we would be under ordinary circumstances. So today we are diving into commandment number eight, which is about taking, taking what is not ours. And if in the days to come you find yourself with an uncontrollable need to power shop, it's because you were here this morning. Seriously, consider yourself fairly warned. This is how our natures work, and this is how the devil works. If we get too far into righteousness, he tries to lure us with exactly the opposite. Now, in the old English translation of these commandments, we gave them really lovely-sounding words. Thou shalt not steal. In the original Hebrew, it is only two very concise, powerful words. No steal. Four in a row exactly like it. No murder. No adultery. No steal. No lying. No covet. Could it be any clearer? And yet. And yet. Now stealing is one of those things that if it has ever happened to you, you feel instantly and suddenly aggrieved by it. Has anyone ever taken your place in a shopping line? Anybody ever cut in front of you in kindergarten? I remember the first time a kid did that to me, vividly. Anybody ever taken your airplane seat? Anyone ever frauded you out of a few dollars? If someone takes or steals what is ours, we feel a sudden sense of unfairness and justice. Am I the only one? Come on, people. You like your stuff? You know you do. There is a universal sense of fair play when it comes to owning and possessing and taking, wrongfully taking. It just feels wrong. And if you've ever been on the other side of this, I also remember vividly pocketing some unicorn stickers when I was in the second grade. Kids' stickers used to be very popular in the olden days. There was a sticker store at the mall, and I slipped a little stack of unicorn stickers into my pocket, and I went home, and I have never felt worse. I have never slept more poorly. Those stickers, like, turned my heart to ashes because I knew deep down that just taking is wrong. However... When it comes to the cousins of stealing, we are much more happily inclined. Cousins like envy, or wanting, or greed, 
Or if I can use this really old-fashioned word from the Tenth Commandment, coveting, which simply means to want what someone else has that we don't yet have. Maybe a possession, maybe a personal quality, maybe a life circumstance. We, my friends, are professional coveters here in the United States of America. We have built an entire culture and civilization on the close cousin of taking. In fact, when people covet us, oh, I wish I had abs like you. Oh, I wish my front yard was as green as yours. How did you... We feel awesome. Nothing makes us happier than when people covet us and our stuff. Again, am I the only one? Right? This is what makes people happy. The last two weeks, we noticed how Jesus expanded on commandments number six and seven in the Sermon on the Mount. He took not only murder, but expanded it into our mental life, our imaginative life about how we get angry and wish ill on others. With the seventh commandment, Jesus didn't just leave it at adultery. He brought it into our fantasies and our imaginations and into our very loyalties. With the eighth commandment, with stealing, Jesus does not do this in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm suspicious that the reason he did not do this is because commandment 10 is right there knocking on the door of commandment number 8. And by saying in the Ten Commandments, no coveting, that moves this idea of stealing already into our mental life, into our imaginative life, into what we might want and even what we might think we want. God asks us to be content, friends be happy and joyful with what he provides us right here and right now. Not to be content with what he might give you a year from now or 10 years from now, but to be content and joyful with what he has entrusted with you right here, right now. So Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount to pray, give us today our daily bread. Not our weekly bread, not our monthly bread, not our annuity bread, our daily bread bread. However, I for one find it exceedingly difficult to be content with my daily bread when every time I go to Amazon.com I am reminded of what I've shopped for before and when I'm going to need to shop for that thing again and because it tweaks me on other things I might like because I've liked these other things in the past. Am I the only one? Oh, people. We are not getting better at not stealing. We are getting better at coveting. We are super coveters. Jesus strikes at really what motivates us to be wanting more, to be shopping for more, to be thinking about more, to be thinking about what's next. When he says this in the Sermon on the Mount, if you'd please read the words in yellow. Do not worry, people, about your life what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear? Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? So look at the birds of the air, for example. They don't sow or reap or store away in their barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, Add a single hour to your life. Jesus would make a very 
bad American, very bad capitalist. He seems very content just with what he has right now, and he advises us against devoting too much mental energy into what tomorrow might bring, or what we could buy, or what's going to happen with our next paycheck. We are consumers. We live in a consumer culture. We consume goods and services. I have tried to boil kind of what's in our, our North American air into a simple phrase. Here's my best shot at it. More stuff, or perhaps better stuff, if you're a quality person, equals more happiness. I am not promoting this as truth, quite the contrary. I'm saying, this is what is in the very water that we drink and the air we breathe. This is the promise that more stuff, a bigger stuff, better stuff, a duplicate of maybe what you already have, just a slightly improved model, that will give you more happiness. Jesus himself presents a radically alternative kingdom, an alternative universe, in which a different rule is true. And here is what I think Jesus' formula is. That less stuff equals more connectedness. That the less you are hanging on to with your hands or possessing actually creates a space within your life and within yourself to be more connected to your family, more connected to your friends, more connected to God. Now, both of these cannot be true, okay? Either more stuff equals more happiness, or perhaps less stuff equals more connectedness. By the way, this is one of the reasons why we receive tithes and offerings in every single worship service here. It's not about the amount. It is about a weekly sign in the presence of God that all things being equal, we would rather have some of our dollars slip through our fingers and go to causes beyond ourselves so that we can be connected to our neighbor and each other and the church and God. Okay? So if you come here and tithing is part of your spiritual practice, you're, you're living this in some way already. Now to put some flesh on this, I am going to fire off some quotations and a few historical stories at you. Okay? I'm going to start in the modern age with someone named Brad Pitt. Do we know who Brad Pitt is? Okay, he is not currently at the top of his powers, but a few years ago, when he was at like the top of his game as an actor, he's a very handsome man, right? He has a lovely wife. He said this, The emphasis in my life has been on success and personal gain. I am sitting right in the middle of it. Thank you, Brad, for making us all feel bad and inferior, right? But I'm telling you, this is not it. I am the guy with everything. I know it. But I'm telling you, once you have everything, you wake up and you realize you just have yourself. Does that sound like a guy who's found it? Not quite yet. Another guy, perhaps you've heard of, Tom Brady. It's Tall Handsome Man Sunday here for Father's Day. Tom Brady, quarterback of the New England Patriots. A couple years ago, he said this. I have all these Super Bowl rings. But I still think that there's something greater out there for me. I mean, a lot of people will say to me, Hey man, this is what it is. I've reached my goals, my dreams, my life, and yet I think, 
Oh God, there's got to be more than this. Does that sound like a guy who's found it? I'm going to quote to you from another wealthy person whose story has gone a different way. A man named Wayne Heisinga, or Heisinga Jr. I have been self-focused. I was so used to doing what pleased me no matter what. It's my life. I had wealth, super nice fishing yacht, lived in a big home, incredible amount of disposable income. I've owned three sports teams, drank in excess, went to clubs that I couldn't tell my mother about, demanded an audience all the time, said whatever would come into my mind, whether to you or your spouse. My life has been an incredible banquet of things that the world had to offer, and yet... I have never been full, fully satisfied, never been able to push away from the table and say, that's enough. But that was before Christ. Before Christ, I was self-focused, but now I realize I'm just second. <coughs> Finally, a rich guy who seems to have found something a little more by finding out that he is a little less. 1,500 years ago, there was a young woman named Bridget in the country of Ireland. She, too, was extremely wealthy. Her father was a lord. She was one of the first converts after hearing the preaching of a man named Patrick. St. Patrick? Okay, this is in 500 AD. Bridget believes in Jesus Christ, and it makes a huge difference in her life immediately, and she begins to give stuff away. Right? She's rich. She gives money away. She also figures out, we have all kinds of silver and gold at home. She starts giving away forks and spoons and knives. Her father did not convert, did not believe in Jesus, and was a little frustrated with his daughter. Can you imagine this? So, it's 1,500 years ago in Ireland, right? So, this is how the story goes. Grabs his daughter by the hair, drags her to the horse cart, tells her that he's taking her to the nearby town of Leinster to marry her off to the local lord, and that she's going to spend the rest of her life grinding her grain, grinding his grain for nothing. They ride to town, he ties her hands up, he gets um, out of the cart, he unbuckles his sword, puts it against a tree, because this was a good Irish way, you don't want to enter a guy's house with your sword, it might mean you're angry. He's not angry, he just wants to marry off his daughter who's driving him crazy. He tells this man, hey, I have an additional free wife for you, come out, she's lovely. They come out, 15 minutes later, and there is Bridget. Her hands are no longer tied. The horse is gone. The cart is gone. The sword is gone. Because a beggar happened by, and Bridget said, Hey, can you untie me? And he untied her. And then she said, God bless you. Let me provide for your needs. Have this horse. Take this cart. And here's my father's best sword. <laughs> when the Lord of Leinster saw this, he remarked, Sir, it is clear your daughter is far too good and righteous for me. She needs to go home with you. About 700 years later, in Italy, there was a man called Francis. Francis of Assisi, he, like Bridget, remarkable conversion when he was a young man, made a lifelong vow of poverty. He died when he was only 44 years old. 
in his last week of life, he was surrounded by three friends, and he made a very unusual dying request, did Francis. He asked his friends to strip him naked and to lie him on the bare earth, and then to walk to town and back, which would take about three hours. This was Francis's way of saying, I have tried to let go the stuff of earth as long as I have lived, and when it comes my moment to go home to heaven, I want no pretenses. I want my hands clinging to nothing. I want to die and go home to God the way I came into the world, just a naked soul in the presence of God. This is a man who took giving it all away extraordinarily seriously. And then there's Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, who being God, did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of, but made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant, a slave, an infant. Jesus, who left the fabulous happiness, joy, riches of heaven to come to this broken and sin-ridden planet. Jesus, who when he grew into a man, quit his day job as a carpenter so that he could minister and preach and heal and be supported by others. It's remarkable to me that God had to be supported by the charitable giving of others. Jesus, who in the end even gave up his good reputation not only as God but as a human being and was crucified as a criminal. Could he give up anything more? Jesus, who gave up his dignity on the cross. Jesus, who had his last shreds of clothing gambled away by Roman soldiers who custom it was not to crucify you with a modest loincloth, but to crucify you naked to the world. Jesus, who gave away everything to scandalously hang between heaven and earth. Now, friends, countless rich people have come and gone in the last few thousands of years. But in the church, we remember the ones that lost everything, that gave it all up so that they could be wholeheartedly, totally willing and available to connect to God and to live in the will of God. They are our heroes. So you may be thinking, okay, Pastor Greg, those are some fine stories. I haven't stolen anything lately. I feel inspired by Bridget or Francis, Jesus especially. So I promise a little less greed in my life, maybe a little less consumption for the next couple weeks. Call it good for the Eighth Commandment. I wish it could be that easy for us. It's not just avoiding the negative side of this commandment that God is after. There are some of us here who maybe even this week or this month, we have defrauded the government, we have embezzled, we have taken something. Um, I've known fine Christian people who have gotten all kinds of messes. If that is where you are this morning, just breaking the Eighth Commandment, 
Please know that God is not in heaven just ready to crush you. He wants you to stop immediately. No question about it. But God is here to say, I want to forgive you and I want you to change your ways. And this is why I give you this command. Because as you're breaking it, I know your heart is turning to dust within you. But please, please, please know, I am here to forgive you. I have given up everything through my son Jesus Christ on the cross so that you can be forgiven. Some of you need that today. Some of you are not stuck in a cycle of taking right now. God wants to say something different to you. God wants to stretch you into living into the flip side or the positive side of this Eighth Commandment. Here is what uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, a near and dear uh, confession of our Reformed Church says. Can we go to the next slide, please? Thank you. This is the positive side. I'll read the question. Please respond with the answer. What does God require of you in the Eighth Commandment? I must promote my neighbor's good wherever I can and may, deal with him as I would like others to deal with me, and work faithfully so that I may be able to give to those in need. Now this is a long way from just don't steal, right? This is the true meaning and intention in the Eighth Commandment. That we would not only avoid taking but that we would get in the happy habit of holding the stuff of this earth loosely and giving away as much as we appropriately can. Why do I have stuff? Why has God entrusted this church, your family, with so much material blessing? I think the best answer is so that we can hold it loosely and prove our love to God by not being overly attached to it. Joy does not come into your life by having both hands full and overflowing and clinging onto it. Joy comes from having a loose grip on whatever he has put into your hands. I'm experimenting with this a little bit at our house right now. Sometimes it feels good, sometimes it's a little awkward. So, um, I've, I've given up the game of golf this year. I really like to play golf. But there's some circumstances in my life that have made me realize, you know what, instead of trying to be a really good golfer right now, just, it's done. It's not super noble. It's a little something. At our house, we are trying to live uh, in less space right now. It's still new. We're experimenting with it, our little footprint. Not trying to recommend us as heroes here, I'm just saying like, there's little ways for us to hold things more loosely. Perhaps with your phone, rather than having it provide digital reminders of when you need to simply shop for stuff, perhaps you can use that timer on your phone to remind you of the best time of day when you connect to God by reading the scripture or when it's time to pray. That's a great way to use a phone. The reason 
that we're trying these little experiments, that I'm trying these little experiments in my life, is not to be a spiritual superhero, right? I know I'm a pastor, I'm your pastor, but I'm just a guy, I like, I stink. I want stuff, okay? But I've realized that more than the stuff that I want, I want to turn up the volume on things that I want more, which is, I want more friendship with the people that I'm friends with. I want more fun with my kids. I want more good evenings with my wife. I want more awesome experiences with my church. I want more awareness of God's presence in my life. And all of those wants, I think God is saying, yeah, but I want to help you turn the volume up on that and turn the volume down. It's never going to go away entirely on the more superficial things. Some of you are smiling. If you want some of that catalog of what I just said, oh, let's turn the volume up on that. God in the Eighth Commandment not only wants us not to avoid stealing, is not only promoting doing good and holding things loosely, I think God is also, if I can put it this way, God is also promoting holy robbery. Holy robbery. And here's what I mean. One way of thinking of what Jesus did is that he took our sin away. Right? That he washed us clean. One of the things Jesus did, if I can put it this way, is that he took the burden of guilt and shame and sin that was rightfully ours, and he stole it from us. Like, that's a great kind of stealing, right? If someone is in pain, and you can borrow part of their burden, that is holy robbery. If you know someone who is hurting, and you can provide something for them in the midst of their hurt, you are robbing them of part of their burden of pain. If you know someone with a need that you can provide of, you are robbing them of their lack. And my friends, I think at the end of the day, this is the true meaning of the Eighth Commandment. Not just to avoid taking what is not ours, but to actually rob people of the pain and the difficulty and the burdens that exist in their life. And praise God, our church in many beautiful ways does exactly that. But perhaps as I'm speaking these words, you are aware that the Holy Spirit is tap, tap, tapping you and inviting you to rob someone else in the most holy of ways. So lastly, friends, a little spiritual exercise. Would you hold your hands out and uh, perhaps bring to mind uh, something that before walking in this room today, you thought you really wanted. Like, hey, if I get this Father's Day gift, awesome. Or what I'm going to buy with my next paycheck, awesome. Or if I can get this a month from now, super awesome. So bring that thing to mind and close your hands on it. Like, own it. That's real. And now if you want to take the extra step, open your hands back up and open your fingers and let whatever that slightly precious thing is to you 
simply slide through and as a prayer of offering, show your open hands to God and say, God, if I don't get that thing, it's fine. As long as there's more of you. As long as there's more love and community and togetherness and friendship in my life, that thing can pass through, God. I just, I really want more of what you want for me. And friends, when we show God that prayer, when we have the courage to reject our wants and our needs, Jesus says, when you seek first the kingdom and my righteousness, all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. God's got it in his hands. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Will you pray with me? God, please forgive us for thinking that more material stuff or a different set of circumstances would truly satisfy us and make us, ha make us happy. God, give us the wisdom to keep seeking your kingdom and create in us the openness, the largeness of heart so that we can welcome you and all the signs of your presence in. We love you, God. We want more of you. We want more of your will. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.